Chapter 22 When I regained consciousness, I was standing outside the cabin. Night had fallen. The moon was behind clouds, lighting them up as bright as it had on my trek here. A yellow rope tied to the latch on the cabin door ran waist-high into the woods, disappearing in shadow. A zip-tie bound my wrists, and a second zip-tie tethered my wrists to the rope. I could barely hear the prisoners murmuring in the cabin. They sounded less agitated, almost subdued. Eric stood beside me, eyes alert. He didn't look high anymore. I assumed he could once again read my thoughts. I kept my mind clear by repeating my mantra, Be Posigetiful, Be Posigetiful. What's the matter? Eric said. Everything. He smiled. Be Posigetiful, no? Thanks. Walk please. There is a stump sufficient for your needs at the end of the line, as they say. The rope ran adjacent to the trail that had led me here. The ground was uneven. In ten paces, we were in the woods. Eric turned on a flashlight and shined it ahead of me. After maybe five minutes of weaving between trees and stepping over rotting branches and rain-soaked underbrush, we came to a redwood stump taller than me and almost as wide as the cabin. This end of the rope was tied to a short branch that tapered to a point on the side of the stump. Good yes? Eric said. Do your business. I am ready. It's perfect. I walked up close to the branch, no longer able to keep my thoughts from pouring out. Eric's decision to tie one end of the rope to a smooth little branch and the other to that flimsy door latch that was held on by one nail, his decision to even install the rope in the first place, all added up to one conclusion, the bastard really did have spatial awareness problems. He was afraid he wouldn't be able to find his way back to the cabin through the woods without the rope to lead him. But because of his spatial deficiencies, he hadn't understood how to secure the rope properly. All of these thoughts tumbled out in an instant too quickly for Eric to stop me from whipping the rope off the branch, wrapping it around my hands, and yanking with all my strength as I leapt forward, beyond the reach of Eric's outstretched arms. The rope went slack, and I bounded through the woods with it, into the darkness, reeling it in. I fell and scrambled back up. I heard crunching behind me. Eric's flashlight bobbed up and down ten paces back. He was following. Good. The rope snagged. I tugged and wrenched until it bit into my palms. Eric gained ground. He was five feet from me. I heard his breathing. I left the rope, letting it slide through the zip-tie loop as I barreled through a thicket of ferns. Hopefully, I'd reeled in enough that Eric couldn't use it to find his way back to the cabin. Over the sound of twigs snapping under feet, Eric cried out. Over my shoulder, I saw the flashlight on the ground, pointing away, and his dark shape beside it. He'd fallen, hit a tree or something. For a man with his condition, there was probably no worse place to be than in the woods at night. I barreled ahead until I couldn't see the flashlight anymore, then walked for another few minutes. When I figured there was enough distance between us that he couldn't follow my footfalls, I rounded back toward the cabin, giving a wide berth to where I'd last seen him. My lungs were tight and burning with the cold air pumping through them. I walked for ten minutes with no sign of the cabin. Maybe I'd overestimated the breadth of my own spatial awareness. A little panic crept in, shorter breaths second-guessing my path straining my eyes at shadows. 
Then a backdrop of silver moonlight made silhouettes of the tree trunks in the mid-distance. I rushed ahead and came out from under the canopy back into the clearing, behind the cabin. There was a round slab of concrete here with a metal hatch in the center, locked with a padlock. I ran past it and around the cabin to the front door. Eric was nowhere in sight, and neither was the rope. I pulled it that far at least. I checked my pockets with my bound hands. My wallet, my keys were still there, and my phone. Eric hadn't taken them. With two fingers I pulled out my phone, pressed the home button. Nothing. I tried to power it on. Nothing. Out of battery. Hugo and the two other prisoners were in front of their mirrors, casting long shadows from the low light of the lantern. I had no hope of finding the right bottle on the racks to wake them up from the seasons. Instead, I put the sheets over their mirrors and herded them toward the door, guiding them by their shoulders while they continued muttering nonsense. They walked out passively enough, but when I grabbed Hugo's wrist to lead him to the trail I'd taken here, he pulled away violently. Then when I let him go, he settled down and meandered in the other direction like a sleepwalker. He was following the path to his bond. The mirrors. They seemed to cast some kind of spell on them. I ran back into the cabin and swung an elbow at the closest mirror, and it shattered. I picked up one of the larger shards off the floor. As I turned to leave, something gnawed at me. The bottles, row after row of torture waiting for the next victim. I placed the mirror shard in my pocket and gathered the least muddy of the cardboard packaging into a pile in front of the potbelly stove. I bunched the sheets in a wad which I used to protect my hand while opening the stove door. The coals were low inside but still smoldering. With a half-burned log, I flicked the coals out and onto the floor, and I pushed them against the cardboard pile and blew until a flame took. I snatched the lantern from the nail in the low ceiling and ran outside to catch up with Hugo. I followed the sound of his voice into the woods. He was moving slow and hadn't made it far. I held the broken shard of mirror up to his eyes with one hand and the lantern with the other. Slowly I backed away and he followed. Step by step, my eyes catching on every shadow, afraid Eric would jump out at any moment, we made our way to the trail and it led us to the cow field I'd woken up in on the way here. At the end of the field, we came to a line of alder trees following a small creek. The water was ankle-deep and cold. My shoes squished and squirted as I climbed the bank on the other side, holding the mirror and lantern with my bound hands, Hugo babbling and huffing after me. We stopped at the top of a shallow embankment. At the bottom, the trail ran through a gash in a barbed wire fence to a narrow frontage road. The crashing sounds of winter waves came from across the highway, and I smelled the ocean in the air. I looked back. There was a flashlight in the clearing, a bouncing pea of white light moving down the trail toward us. Eric. He'd found his way out. I backpedaled swiftly down the embankment and through the opening in the fence to the road. Hugo kept up, thankfully. I ran sideways down the road, holding out the lantern and mirror shard, worried Hugo would lose his reflection again and wander off. But every time I looked over my shoulder, he was right behind me, running like a sprinter at the finish line, head and shoulders out front. My heavy breathing drowned out whatever nonsense he spoke. I was sweating when we came to a stop sign. To the left, the road ran down a dark tunnel of trees. To the right, it went over Highway 101. I recognized the overpass. 
We were just outside of McKinleyville, on the north end of town. I knew of a bar down the road called the Clam Beach Inn. I could call Lou from there. He could give us a ride and bring me Odalith Cackle for Hugo. Crossing the overpass, I felt exposed. I kept looking back to see if Eric had reached the road, but trees obstructed my view. Every fear that whisked through my mind was entertained, was given shape. Eric had a sniper rifle and was in a tree blind poised and ready to pick us off. He kept vicious dogs in a kennel I hadn't seen, and he'd release them after he found his way back through the woods. We reached the other side and turned onto another frontage road. This one ran along Clam Beach. The surf was louder here, and it mingled with the infrequent highway traffic. We came to a parking lot and a small open campground with a handful of sites. Only one had a tent on it. A trailer home was parked near the road under a streetlight. It belonged to the camp host. An awning and fence had been built on and around the trailer. A man stood outside of the fence, watching a dog do its business. I stopped running and called out to him, Can I use your phone? It's an emergency. His eyes widened when he saw us, and I realized how we must have looked to him. Two men running down the road in the middle of the night, one talking to a mirror the other held with bound hands. I'll call for you, he said. 911? No, I need to call a friend. Forget it. He gave us a flat stare. We kept moving, barely jogging now. I was tired. I wasn't used to running. My feet were sore and my calves ached. There was no one following us. Eric must not have seen which way we went in the dark and taken a wrong turn somewhere. Still I was relieved when I saw the light of the Clam Beach Inn. It was a small bar on a back road, surrounded by trees and bushes. It had rooms to rent out back, but there were no houses or other businesses in sight. Inside the place was dead. Two men sat on one side of a horseshoe bar, and one man sat on the other. No music played on the jukebox, and I could hear the buzzing from the lamp hanging above the lone pool table. The only greetings we received were cold stares. I felt like we had walked into someone's living room, uninvited. I set the broken mirror on a table in the corner. While Hugo stooped over it, talking like a man having a psychotic break, I bellied up to the bar. May I use your phone? It's an emergency. The bartender, an older woman with curly brown hair and bangs, divided her attention between my zip-tied wrists and the crazy man talking to a mirror. It's my bachelor party, I said. That's my best man. As you can tell the night's gone terribly wrong. I held up my wrists. This was part of some stupid bachelor party game that was his idea. Then he went and took a ton of acid for the first time in his life. I just need to call my fiancé for a ride so I can get my friend to a safe place to sleep it off. The bartender looked at Hugo, then back at me, and she smiled. I wouldn't want to be you right about now. Better get your story straight before your fiancé comes. I hear ya. She took maybe 30 seconds to come back with the cordless phone, but it felt like an hour. I kept looking at the door, expecting Eric to barge in. The bartender set the phone down, flicked open a knife, and raised her eyebrows at me. Yes please, I said, and she cut the zip tie. Thank you. After rubbing my wrists, I searched my pockets and found the paper with Lou's number on it. 
As I dialed, I asked, It's Saturday, right? The bartender laughed. You boys really tore one off, didn't you? It's Sunday. Sunday. I checked the clock on the wall. 1 a.m. Early Sunday. I hadn't missed Kalia's trial. There was still time.